term. We hear the term, and it's so loaded, we don't really know what to think of it anymore. And this is problematic. For repentance is actually a wonderful and necessary idea. Jesus uses it all the time. He uses it there, he uses it here. And anything Jesus uses often, <coughs> we who want to be followers of him should probably be interested in knowing about it, right? Since he used it often. So, before we pause for the Advent season, we had started to explore and contrast grace and law. Excuse me. Two other terms that can be shrouded in misunderstanding. Due to years of being weighed down with isolated or agenda-filled definitions. And as we started this year, we're going to coach that exploration of law and grace in the context of ushering in the kingdom of God that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. What does that look like? How do we do it? Last week, we watched that brilliant talk that, that used the metaphor of carrying each other to talk about what the kingdom is all about. God carries us, and he wants us to carry each other. So this week, I want to continue to ask the question, how, how do we live like Christ? How, how do we usher in the kingdom? How do we carry each other? How do we authentically love others? Now, interestingly, this very misunderstood word, repent, plays a pretty substantial role in that mystery of becoming like Christ. So, let's consider it and try to unpack this idea of repentance. So maybe it's a word we can get familiar with again instead of just tuning out whenever we hear it. And maybe help redefine it and reimagine it for people who are always going to think of it in a negative context because it's been used that way in their lives. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. We probably, most of us have heard that. And that simply means a change of mind. A change of mind. A lot of us have heard that. However, Great Temple argues that the original, in its fullest sense, suggests a radical revision of our whole mental process. A radical revision of our whole mental process. And this is important to understand. For here is the thing, I think, about repentance. It is both something we do as well as something God does in us. It's certainly true that we have to start the process of changing our mind. We have to start that process. Rethinking our stance on God, on Jesus Christ, on morality, on ethics, etc., etc., etc. And we have to get ourselves to a place where we accept or acquiesce to, if you will, who God is and what God wants our lives to look like. However, Repentance is also what God does in us by giving us a new mind. By giving us a new mind. It's a real and literal change of mind. It's as if our gene pool gets replaced by his gene pool to talk in those kind of terms. And we're going to talk more about that next week when we unpack another loaded Christian term. But for now, repentance brings real change from the inside up, it's true transformation, not behavior modification. And there's a big difference. See, the common understanding of repent, and I think this is why a lot of us stop listening to it, it's just more behavior modification. 
do better, and then beat ourselves up when we fail and we don't, in the hopes that the next time we will do the right thing. But Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that. He wants that we be transformed into Christ-like, right? And I think that's what he meant when he used the term repent. He was telling us, get a new mind. Get a new mind. Which is why St. Paul wrote, we have the mind of Christ. We, we have it. <coughs> we have it. Christ is saying, let my mind that is already in you take over. Right? Notice how Jesus develops this remarkable concept. So after saying repent for the kingdom of God is near, he then says, and the kingdom of God is within you. Paul knew this very clearly. When he wrote to the Galatians, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. So, it's about letting Christ take over. Letting God be our mind. Then when His mind is in control, we become aware of the kingdom of God. Life, peace, goodness, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, love, etc., etc. These things that make up the kingdom of God, these things we're all hoping to realize when we meet God face to face. All of these things, we discover them inside of us. Because that's where they are. Jesus said that. The kingdom is in you. We have the mind of Christ in us. And as we become aware of these things, as Jim Palmer writes, as we experience these within us, they progressively become what we are in the world. And the kingdom of God becomes a reality. On earth as it is in heaven. That's how we started this year, looking at the Lord's Prayer, remember? Ushering in the kingdom of God. So repentance is the start of this whole glorious and mysterious process. So let's consider the two sides of this repentance thing, our side and God's side, and see if it can help us move deeper into living more and more like Christ. But here's the thing, I want to be very clear. I'm not giving a three-step process to transformation because in the final analysis, loving God and loving others is relationship. So there are no three-step plans to perfect relationship, even if Amazon is selling 127 books that say there are. There's no three-step plans to perfect relationship. Relationship is a journey. It's an eternal journey. There is no simple process. We have to live it. We have to do it. What I'm hoping is that by exploring some of the more realistic parameters of the journey, some of the guideposts of this journey, by reimagining some of these more important concepts within Christianity, like repentance, we can be better prepared to move more deeply into a love that transforms us from the inside out and lets us be those persons who usher in God's kingdom, who do carry each other. For that's the point, to usher in the kingdom of God. So let's start with us, changing our own mind. And here is where honesty comes in. <coughs> honesty. Being honest with ourselves and with God about what we think, who we are, and honest about how that is often very, very different from 
what God thinks and what God wants us to be. And being honest with ourselves is the hardest thing, isn't it? It's really hard. It's really hard. Here's an example. Let's talk about enemies. But let's not talk about America's enemies. That's just a theory. None of us are really part of how do we deal with enemies. Let's just talk about our enemies. And we all have them. In the broadest definition of the term enemy, whoever is making your life miserable at any given moment is your enemy. Okay? So just right, right now, we all have someone in our lives. Right now, that's an enemy guarantee. If we go around the room, we won't go. We, we won't, because it's probably someone in this room. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. We have an enemy. And as long as we validate, as long as we argue for, as long as we justify, as long as we find loopholes on why we can hate them, we're not being honest about what God wants. No matter what they've done to us, I'm sorry. It might sound good, and I'm sure it is. Look at it. I've got two kids. Do you have kids? Someone hurt your kids? Whew. Someone hurt Noah once? I don't know if I forgive them then. That was like 10 years ago. So I, you, you get all the reasons not to forgive. And they, they're all good. And, and I get it. It's a human reaction. All I'm saying is if we're going to be honest with God, that's not what God wants. God is clear in Scripture. Love your enemies. Forgive those who hurt you. It's, it's, it's across the board what God wants. Right? It's hard. Paul Norris and I were talking about this week, right? It's hard. It's hard to sit here and listen to me say it every week. <coughs> Because we all have enemies and we don't want all our enemies. But this is where honesty comes in. Honesty is the beginning of changing our mind. And the more we spend time with God and understanding and being honest about what God wants, the more we open the possibility of changing our mind. That's, it has to start there. And it's so important we do not underestimate this need to change our mind. Because think about this. If we know what Jesus is like, and know what Jesus wants us, and know that Jesus wants us to be like him, we have to want to follow him. Or I suggest we just blow off Christianity altogether. We can't hear him tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and continue to ignore that, and cultivate disregard for others, cultivate selfishness, cultivate even hate in our minds. We have to be open, at minimum, to moving in the direction the Holy Spirit's trying to move us. We have to be open to being like Christ. This is our part in it. Sailing offers a simple illustration, which is why I played that song at Offering. And, and by the way, just as a reminder, it's been probably a while since I've, I've mentioned this, but that song during the Offering time, we don't pass the basket anymore, but it's still a moment. That's not filler. I just want everyone to understand that, that moment, that song, whether it's a special by the band or, or put in place by um, me, is designed to continue the theme of the day. So I chose that because it's part of this theme, and I'm going to use this illustration now. So, sailors do not make the boat go. Anyone that has ever sailed, I, I, I only sailed a couple times. I spent more time getting out of the way of that thing that swings back and forth. Like I'm <laughs> it wasn't fun to me, so give me a word about anything. But sailing, let's get back to this. Sailors don't make the boat go, the wind does. The wind makes the boat go, right? But if the sailor does not set the sail so the wind can drive it, then the boat doesn't move. Or worse, it goes in circles, or worse, it gets swamped. 
Okay? So if we have decided we are correct about something in our lives, whether it's hating an enemy or, or any other countless behaviors or attitudes or thoughts, that we're correct about it and God's incorrect about it, well, then we're like a ship stuck in the middle of the ocean with our sails down. Right? We're never going to become like Christ if we haven't set our sail. We have no chance of living like Christ if we don't want to. And if we're not honest about what he wants, right? We have to be honest about it because he's going in that direction. And we are called to be like Christ. Jesus was clear about that. And speaking of honesty, let, let's be honest about this. We're, we're called to live like Jesus Christ lived. Okay? So, I, I used a quote last week, which I don't have up here. Lloyd-Jones, remember last week's opening quote? That is what salvation is for. To enable us to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what salvation is for. Because those are two things we don't do without God. Love others and love Him. Okay. And this is where God's side of the repentance process comes in. Christ in us, enabling us to live like Him. St. Peter said it this way. <coughs> His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's a pretty powerful statement that St. Peter made. The divine nature in us it's in us. We can participate in it if we want to. That's the beauty of the divine nature. It doesn't force itself on us. If the divine nature forced itself on us, my guess is the world wouldn't look the way it is. And our lives wouldn't look the way they did. Right? But it's there. It's there. And this thing, this, this term, <coughs> desires, you know, don't, don't let that be too big of a deal. Because then, then this is what happens in Scripture. You, you read the Bible and you see these words and like, well, I'm not evil. Okay, great. So just break it down a little bit. I, I'm sure none of us here are living grotesquely evil lives. I, I hope not. But anything that is not the way of Christ is at the end of the day an evil desire, right? So when my wife who's the most beautiful, wonderful, perfect wife ever, <laughs> just so happens to do something that I don't like. Careful, careful. That's my point. <laughs> my argument that she's wrong and I'm right is really an evil desire because it's not the way of Christ. Amen. <laughs> Go, girls. <laughs> See, the divine nature in us, the divine nature in us, God is, is God's genes replacing our genes. It's the radical revision of our whole mental process. It's, at the end of the day, full repentance, and that's God's work in us. God's work in us. Paul understood this. He wrote to Titus another really powerful passage. He said, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, it, grace, 
this is huge to catch this, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace. That's God's power. Paul wrote an entire letter to the Galatians explaining that grace is God's power to change us, nothing else. Romans. It's another treatise of Paul's on why grace is God's power and nothing else. Grace, when received, <coughs> when received, or in Christianese terms, when surrendered to, grace transforms a person to be able to live like Christ and usher in the kingdom of God. Grace gives us a new mind. We have to turn to grace. Turning to grace is part of our side of repentance. Jesus was clear about living like Christ. But Jesus was just as clear that it is grace that allows the possibility of authentic imitation. Grace makes the impossible possible. Makes us able to live into perfect love. His love by grace is the power that transforms us. We can live like Christ. So let's be thinking about honesty. Let's be thinking about honesty with ourselves and with God. About what we really think. For I'm pretty sure, if we're honest, we'll all start to see there's always change, there's always repentance. We really need, for there's always more of Christ to imitate. Right? So whether we're sitting here today and there is... 1% of our lives that looks like Jesus Christ or 90% of our lives that looks like Jesus Christ. We all need more change. We all need more of his mind in control of our minds. Remember, that's the good news, that we can live like Christ. And in the end, living like Christ is ushering in the kingdom. This is Mary Johnson. Mary Johnson's story is a haunting, it's a very haunting story, but it is also a very clear illustration of these two sides of repentance that we talked about today. <coughs> On February 12, 1993, her only son, 20-year-old Iranian, was murdered. The killer at the time was a 16-year-old named Oshea Israel. They didn't know each other. They were at a party in Minneapolis, I think it was, and O'Shea killed him. In the aftermath of the killing and during the trial, she remembered a deep hatred settling over her for this kid who killed her son. These are her own words. She said, here I was, a Christian woman filled with hatred. Did you hear that honesty? I love that honesty. Who wouldn't feel Filled with hatred for someone that killed your child. Who would But here are honesty. Here I was, a Christian woman filled with hatred. She was being honest about who she was. Yes, I, I hate this person. I'm filled with hatred. She was being honest that God doesn't want her to be filled with hatred. Honesty. Honesty, so important. So, then came the first step in the repentance process. Well, that's actually the first step, honesty, but then this next step. Her side of the process. 
at the part of the trial where she gave the victim impact statement, she started to change her mind. These are her words, again, I'm quoting her. I was inspired by my faith, and so I ended my statement. Now think about this. This is in court. There's a killer son. I ended my statement by saying, I've forgiven O'Shea because the Bible tells us to forgive. There's that change of mind. Okay? She hasn't forgiven him yet. I'm getting that. But she knows what God wants. Forgiveness. That's where it starts. As long as we say to ourselves, oh no, I'm not forgiving them, and I'm absolutely right to do that, and if we surround ourselves with other Christians who believe in hate more than they believe in forgiveness, then we're just not being honest, right? And we're never going to. We're never, as long as we have people telling us we are absolutely right to hate, we're never going to love. We need to change our mind. So, she said, because the Bible tells us to forgive, God bless her. But here's the thing. She hadn't really forgiven him. Of course not. You don't muster up human strength to forgive the person that murdered your kid. And if anyone tells you that, they're, they're selling you a lot. Here's her own words again. But I hadn't actually forgiven. The root of bitterness ran deep. Anger had set in, and I hated everyone. Honesty. But she had set her sail, if you will, right? She had set her sail knowing that forgiveness is the truth. Knowing forgiveness is what God wants. She had acknowledged that God's way and not her way was the truth. She had changed her mind as to what was the Christ-like thing to do. So she was at least now ready for God's part in the process. During the next few years, she continued to maintain that forgiveness was the way, even though she had not yet been able to do it. But she maintained it was the proper thing she should do as a Christian. But eventually her willingness to consider the possibility of following Christ allowed her to be ready when the Holy Spirit completed the repentance process, the giving her of a new mind. She got to a place where she knew she needed to forgive him, and she knew it was only going to happen if she went and met him. Here's her words. I put in a request to the Department of Corrections to meet him. Never having been to a prison before, I was so scared when we got there and wanted to turn back. But when O'Shea came into the room, I shook hands with him and said, I don't know you, and you don't know me. You didn't know my son, and he didn't know you. So we need to lay down a foundation and get to know one another. We talked for two hours, during which he admitted what he'd done. Can you imagine visiting the killer I could see how sorry he was, and at the end of the meeting, for the very first time, I was genuinely able to say that I forgave O'Shea. He couldn't believe I could do this, and he asked if he could hug me. When he left the room, I buckled over saying, I just hugged the man who murdered my son. But then as I got up, I felt something rising from the soles of my feet and leaving me. From that day on, I haven't felt any hatred, animosity, or anger. It was over. Amazing grace. It transforms lives. Her sails had been set, and when the winds blew, she was able to go in the direction she was supposed to go. She was 
She started the process of repentance by surrendering to God's way. And then the Holy Spirit completed the process of giving her a whole new mind. Grace. Grace one. Grace always wins. Mary Johnson ushered the kingdom of God into the world. Into the world of her son's killer. It changed O'Shea's life. And then on into the greater world. She started an organization called From Death to Life dedicated to helping victims and those who have caused harm find healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. This is not her son. That's O'Shea, the man who murdered her son. They're neighbors in Minneapolis. And he works with her in their organization. Spreading the good news of her. This happened. This happened. You know, I read this and I think about the petty little things that I don't forgive in my own life. And I can sit here and I can talk myself into a beautiful reason why I should. Here's the honest truth. Because I'm not being honest about what God wants. And I'm not being honest about me. Because if amazing grace can cause someone to forgive the murder of their son. Just imagine what it could do in our lives if we just let it. Let's start today by changing our minds about what God really wants. Let's set ourselves and then let's allow him to make us like Christ.